the older man and that lady, the way they was killed was like slaughter. Especially the woman, because he chased her down. Yeah. Yeah. She had to be horrified. Yeah. That's the first uh, capital murder case I ever worked on. First, the first one I ever worked on. That was retired Flagler County Sheriff's Captain Warnell Williams and Senior Commander Mark Carmen. They were two of the detectives who investigated a double murder that took place within a quiet Palm Coast neighborhood 29 years ago this week. The convicted killer, Louis Gaskin, known as the Ninja Killer, was sentenced to death for that crime. That story is coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss the charges against Raymond Roberts Jr., who was accused of shooting a Daytona Beach police officer last month with an AK-47. The 40-year-old Roberts faces three counts of attempted first-degree murder of a law enforcement officer. One of the prosecutors handling the case is the state attorney for the Seventh Judicial Circuit, R.J. Larizza, who told the News Journal he really wanted to take this one. Later, I'll discuss the December 20th, 1989 shootings of Robert and Georgette Sturmfels, who were murdered inside their home by Benell man Louis Gaskin. The 23-year-old, who was dressed up like a ninja, fired a 22 caliber rifle into the house and then went inside. He shot both victims dead at point-blank range and then left with some of the couple's household items. He later gave those items to his girlfriend as Christmas gifts. My guest for that segment will be retired Sheriff's Captain Warnell Williams, as well as one of the young detectives under his supervision, Mark Carmen who is now a senior commander with the same agency. Coming up, I'll discuss last week's execution of a man who beat and stabbed a woman to death 26 years ago in Miami-Dade County. Good evening. The sentence of the state of Florida versus Jose Jimenez was carried out at 9.48 p.m. The execution took place without incident. That was Michelle Gladdy a spokeswoman with the Florida Department of Corrections, who announced to the media Thursday the execution of a South Florida man who murdered 63-year-old Phyllis Minus inside her North Miami apartment. Minus, a longtime employee of the Miami-Dade court clerk's office, was killed the night of October 2, 1992, by her neighbor, Jose Antonio Jimenez. Authorities said Jimenez was a cocaine addict. He needed money for more drugs, so he entered his neighbor's second-floor apartment with the intent to steal money or anything else of value that he could pawn for drugs. Minus came home while Jimenez was still inside her apartment. Then Jimenez attacked her. Neighbors heard her yell, Oh my God! and heard loud thumps coming from inside her apartment. They tried to enter, but the door had been slammed shut and locked. 
After he stabbed Minus repeatedly with a pair of scissors, Jimenez jumped from the second balcony and fled. A custodian at the building witnessed Jimenez jumping from the balcony. Jimenez left a fingerprint behind and blood was found on his jeans once police caught up to him. Alan Petit was Minus's nephew. He told Local News 10, the ABC affiliate in Miami, that he and his wife were the ones who had to get on their hands and knees and clean Minus's apartment after detectives were through with it. He called the experience horrible. The relative who got the call about Minus's murder was her brother, Robert Petit. Here he is talking to News 10 in a story that aired hours before the execution. No one deserved what she got. It makes me squirm just to think about it. The slaying occurred weeks after Hurricane Andrew struck South Florida, so it got little media attention at the time. Jimenez was prosecuted in 1994. The trial took a week, and jurors were unanimous in finding him guilty. The defendant's behavior in court probably did not help him. Here again is Petit describing to News 10 what he saw from the defendant. During his trial, he would uh, flip obscene gestures toward us. After his arrest in 1992, Jimenez was convicted of another homicide case involving burglary. He was convicted and sentenced to 17 years for the death of a woman in Miami Beach. Originally, Jimenez was scheduled to be executed in August. Governor Rick Scott signed his death warrant in July, but the Florida Supreme Court issued a stay to consider a number of claims by Jimenez's attorneys, including that he was denied access to public records and that it was cruel for him to be executed after spending 23 years on death row. In October, all of those claims were rejected and the court lifted the stay. Jimenez's request for a stay of execution through the U.S. Supreme Court was denied Thursday by the justices. The Associated Press reported there had been 28 executions since Scott took office in 2011, which is the most of any Florida governor since the death penalty was reinstated in 1976. A grand total of 97 inmates have been executed since that reinstatement. Coming up, the story about a man accused of shooting a Daytona Beach police officer with an AK-47. Grab cover. Keep your head on the swivel. Stay calm. Get down on the ground. Nobody wants to hurt you now. Come walk towards me! Walk towards me! Keep on! Keep on! Keep walking! Get down on the ground for me! Get down on the ground for me! During the night of November 25th, deputies from the Volusia County Sheriff's Office, as well as officers from the Daytona Beach Police Department, converged on Raymond Roberts, who was suspected of opening fire on law enforcement earlier that night. Rookie officer Kevin Hurd was struck on the upper arm with a round from an AK-47. He survived the shooting and is still recovering. Hurd was the first officer shot in the line of duty in Volusia County in seven years.
Emergency operators first received a pair of 911 calls that night after a taxi driver drove by a man holding a rifle in the area of George W. Ingram Boulevard. The gunman was screaming threats at the taxi driver as he drove past him. I've had two of my cab drivers in the last 10 minutes tell me about a guy standing at the corner of South and MLK wielding an AK-47. Okay, so South, is it South Street or South yeah, South Street and, ML, and uh, South MLK. Okay, and it's a man outside and he has a, he has a what does he have in his hand? An AK-47. People who lived in the surrounding area heard a series of rifle rounds a short time later. 911, where is your emergency? We just heard several gunshots, and I've seen somebody walk down the road with a gun. Okay, how long ago did you see them? Um, I can see them right from my kitchen window. They're walking down the street, the, the, the road on the um, behind my house. And you saw them. And I'm afraid to go. I'm afraid to go outside, so I'm not going outside. Nope. Stay inside and stay with your doors locked. Okay. About eight law enforcement officers surrounded Roberts with their weapons drawn. The suspect obeyed commands to lie down on the asphalt and was apprehended. After the suspect was handcuffed and brought to his feet, he said something that deputies and police officers found incredulous. Man, what y'all trying to do? Kill me, man? Shut the up! Up! Kill a cop, dude! Are you serious? I, man, I ain't no drugs, man. I don't know no... On Thursday, Roberts pleaded not guilty to seven felony charges, including three counts of attempted first-degree murder of a law enforcement officer. Police said the 40-year-old was armed with an AK-47 when he shot Heard just below the shoulder. Heard, who is 29 years old and a Marine Corps veteran, underwent at least two surgeries, and his future in law enforcement remains in question. The 40-year-old Roberts was already a known felon to law enforcement. In March, he was accused of instigating a standoff with police. According to court documents, he had barricaded himself with his aunt in her home and threatened to kill her and police officers. Roberts was out on bail for that incident, but it was revoked after his arrest in November. He remains jailed without bail. If convicted... Roberts faces multiple life sentences. State Attorney R.J. Larizza spoke to the News Journal last week after Roberts's hearing. He told my colleague Frank Fernandez why he wanted to be personally involved in the case. And why did you decide to become involved personally in this case? Well, it's a case involving a law enforcement officer that was shot, two others uh, that also were victims of Agassiz and, and Without going into the facts of the case too much, I think it's, you know, the charges speak for themselves. These charges don't come around very often, and I want to make sure our law enforcement community as well as the citizens of the Seventh Circuit understand, uh, you know, the, the serious nature of these crimes. Coming up, the story of a man who decided one night 29 years ago to dress up as a ninja and murder a couple inside their home. He shot him through a French door. He shot the husband was sitting in the living room watching TV. He shot it with the wife. He shot the husband in the chest. The husband stood up and grabbed his chest. The wife thought he was having a heart attack. 
she ran down the hall and he chased her down the hall. Yep, he killed her in the hall. Then he killed her, he shot her, and he covered her up, and then he stole all the items. That was Flagler County Sheriff's Senior Commander Mark Carmen describing what Louis Gaskin did the night of December 20th, 1989. Gaskin fired a 22 caliber bullet through a house and struck 56-year-old Robert Strumfels in the chest. Then he fired a round at Strumfels' wife, Georgette. After those first couple of shots, Gaskin entered the house and shot the victims again at close range. Georgette ran down the hall, perhaps in an effort to get to a phone and call police. But Gaskin caught up to her and gunned her down. Then he took her dress and covered her face as she struggled to breathe. Gaskin did not know the couple. He decided that night to dress up in all black and go kill some strangers. That wasn't the first time Gaskin committed murder. Not only that, but Gaskin wasn't done that night. He fired upon another couple not far from the scene of the first shooting. In that case, the husband was severely wounded, but survived. His wife got away uninjured. On December 22, 1989, the Daytona Beach News Journal posted a front-page story with the headline, Two Dead, One Wounded, in Separate Palm Coast Shootings. At the start of the case, the Flagler County Sheriff's Office, which did not typically handle double homicides or double shootings, had no answers for the media as far as who carried out the shootings or why. But detectives soon realized that both shootings were related. There were too many similarities for them to have been coincidental. Flagler Sheriff Robert McCarthy told the News Journal, quote, There's definitely a strong link between the two. The caliber is the same, and windows were shot. Shell casings, footprints, and tire tracks were found at the scenes. The Strumfells were killed sometime during the night, likely between 10 and 11 p.m. They lived at 10 Ripley Place in the Lehigh Woods subdivision. Palm Coast residents refer to that area as the R-section because all of the roads begin with the letter R. Gaskin almost had to talk himself into shooting the Strumfells. He circled the house five times to build up enough courage. As Carmen mentioned at the top of the segment, Robert Strumfells was in the living room watching television when the first bullet entered his chest. He stood up and clutched his chest. His wife, who was seated nearby, assumed he was having a heart attack and rushed over to check on him. Then she got shot. The front of the house was pelted with rifle fire before Gaskin entered and finished off his victims. Carmen told me that during Gaskin's interview more than a week later, he was asked why he covered Georgette's face and head with her dress. He casually asked Carmen whether he had ever killed a hog. Carmen told him he had not. Gaskin explained to him that when a hog is shot, slaughtered, or otherwise near death, it gurgles. That was the sound Georgette was making. Gaskin described it as a death gurgle. As Georgette was making that sound, he covered her face, maybe in an attempt to muffle the sound. Gaskin wasn't in any hurry to leave. He saw some household items that he wanted to steal. 
He took his time heading back to the car and driving away. The Strumfells were retired. They spent half the year in New Jersey and the other half in Palm Coast. They had only settled into their Florida home a few weeks earlier. Today, the R section is filled up with houses. Palm Coast exploded during the 1990s and 2000s. Back then, it was far more desolate. The Strumfells' home was on a cul-de-sac, and it was the only house on the street back then. It was surrounded by woods, so it was an ideal spot for Gaskin to remain undetected and wait for his opportunity to open fire. He decided that night that he would drive until he saw a house he could shoot into from the outside and murder someone. There are a lot of small roads in the R section, so it's easy to get lost. Only one road in that vicinity is intersected with Royal Palms Parkway, which crosses US-1, so a fast getaway might be difficult for someone who doesn't know the neighborhood. Gaskin wound up getting lost after he left the Strumfell's house. He wound up on Ricker Place, another cul-de-sac about seven-tenths of a mile north. It was there that he saw a light come on. Still armed with his rifle, Gaskin was overcome with the urge to attack again. He wanted the occupants of one Ricker place to come to a window so he could get a clear shot at them. The couple living there were Joe and Nadine Rector. Before he started making noise, Gaskin cut the outside telephone wire. In 1989, people relied almost entirely on landline phones. Gaskin made sure to disable the line before he went to work. He grabbed chunks of logs and rocks and threw them onto the roof. One piece of log hit the roof and tumbled downward. Joe and Noreen heard it. Noreen picked up the phone, but there was no dial tone. That's when they got an ominous feeling. Maybe some juveniles were committing some twisted prank. In reality, it was something far worse. A bullet came through the window and struck Joe in his chest. His wife helped him out to the car, and they sped away toward the hospital, but five bullets pelted the car as it peeled away. Joe and Nadine Rector had never felt so much fear in their lives. Nadine got away with no injuries. Joe's life was saved after he got to the hospital, but it was a close call. Nadine and Joe literally said their goodbyes to each other en route to the hospital. Gaskin burglarized their home, too. He took Joe's wallet and Noreen's purse. He later dumped them in a large ditch. Nine days or so after the shooting, with a bullet still lodged in his lung, Joe Rector agreed to be interviewed by the News Journal. Prior to being shot, Joe Rector never owned a gun. After he got home from the hospital, he bought one. It wouldn't leave his side in the days after the shooting. The shooter still had not been identified or caught. Joe and his wife had blankets covering their windows. They feared the gunman would return. I guess the days of sunlight are gone for a while, Joe told the News Journal. He described what happened that night. His wife, after noticing the phone was dead, took the phone and tried plugging it in to another outlet. She was in the master bedroom, and he stood in the doorway. The bullet that came through the window narrowly missed her and struck him. 
Joe stumbled outside and yelled out that he had been shot. It's like he was screaming out of anger at the shooter. The couple got away. Carmen and Williams told me the gunman probably could have shot them as they were heading for their car, but for some reason he did not open fire. He waited until they were driving away, but none of those bullets hit them. Deputies responded to that house sometime later. It's the first house they responded to. They spent all morning searching for clues. They were unaware of the two bodies lying inside a house just a few blocks south. Here again is Mark Carmen. We didn't know these people, uh, the Sturmfelds, were killed. We were at the director's house on the scene when the mailman pulled up and said, hey, you may want to check that house on. And he gave us the address, whatever it was on Rickenbacker. He was a little seconds broken into it. And that's when we found, found them in there. Found the bodies, yeah. yeah. So it was the neighborhood postman who first noticed the Sturmfelds. The Flagler County Sheriff's Office, with its limited resources, had to shift from the scene of one shooting to another, and the second one was even more serious than the first. A couple days after the shootings, McCarthy was candid about the progress of the investigation. Right now, we're stumped, he told the News Journal. We have nothing. He also said his agency was consulting with the Florida Department of Law Enforcement and the FBI to come up with a profile of the type of person who would do these crimes. The sheriff's office did finally get the tip it needed about a week or so after the Sturmfells were killed. A confidential informant, one who lived in neighboring Bunnell, knew something. That informant was under the purview of the Bunnell Police Department. He spoke to someone at that agency, who then called a detective at the sheriff's office. That detective was Warnell Williams. Williams, who retired from the sheriff's office years ago as a captain, met me at a jiffy stop at the corner of State Road 100 and US 1 in downtown Bunnell. Carmen joined us. That jiffy stop was the very spot where Williams met with the informant 29 years earlier. You can hear Williams in this next clip refer to him as his C.I. My C.I., it was his sister that Gaskin date, and he had him to save some of that jewelry and stuff to give to her for a Christmas present that Christmas. And he talked to you right here, right? Right there in that corner. Started. Yeah, that's how it started. Based on Williams' recollection, the CI was related to Gaskin's girlfriend. Some of the items Gaskin stole, the ones he did not discard, he gave to his girlfriend as Christmas gifts. The CI led Williams to a rifle, which Gaskin had stolen from a neighbor. And that wasn't all that Gaskin had stolen. He had burglarized the homes of both victims and left with some of their possessions. Some of those possessions turned up at Gaskin's girlfriend's house. The informant said Gaskin told him that he had, quote, jacked the gifts and that he had left the victims stiff, indicating that he had murdered them. Here again is Mark Carmen. He gave a lot of that stuff to the his girlfriend for Christmas. Right. There was a clock. When we went and did the search warrant, we had, if you remember correct, we had the neighbor who was telling us what was missing from the house. Mm-hmm. Came in. The 
the lady, there was a neighbor that we came into the house and we said, do you know what's missing? She goes, she was, when it was a table, you know, she goes like, well, there's a lamp there, a clock there. And she described some of it uncanny to a T. So when we came in, uh, you weren't a captain, you were asking, Lieutenant, there goes the clock. It was, it, she described it to a T, it was on the wall. And the girlfriend, you know, there goes the, the lamp. And all the stuff he gave this girl as a Christmas present, pre-Christmas present. Four detectives worked on the case. Jim Schweers, Tommy Quarters, Warnell Williams, and Mark Carmen. Schweers and Williams, who had seniority, sent Carmen and Quarters to stake out Gaskin, who lived on a road called Hyman Circle. Carmen vividly remembers when he and Quarters made their move to arrest him. He will never forget Gaskin's footwear. At two, three in the morning, we waited all night sitting on that house. Gaskins came out of the house with pink fuzzy slippers like your mom would wear. (laughs) And I remember this for a fact because the FBI profiler told us, if you catch him in the act, you're going to have to shoot him out or shoot out with him. You catch him normally, this everyday, normal uh, business, he'll be docile and submissive and just cooperate. When he came out wearing them pink slippers, it was a big mud pile. And he knew right away when me and Tommy come up to him that he knew what happened. He knew he was caught. And we grabbed him and we walked him. And he looked down at the puddle and looked down at, and looked up at us. And <laughs> we ain't going around that puddle, buddy. We're going right to the car. And we walked right to it. You know? yeah. Williams, who grew up in Benell, knew Gaskin from the time he was a youth. He seemed like a normal kid. It was during his investigation that Williams learned that Gaskin was anything but normal. Had you ever encountered Gaskin before, either of you? Yeah, he was raised here. I'd see him every Friday when he'd knock off from work. He'd stop here at the different. Did you ever sense something was off about him? I didn't ever, but some of the neighbors after all this come out were talking about how he used to be around there in Hyman Circle, killing cats and going down the street, flipping and acting like he was something big time. So he showed some disturbing behavior. Yeah. And he, they called him the Ninja Killer? That, that's what, that's the name they give him around there in Hyman Circle. That was Gaskin's nickname on the street, the Ninja Killer. Gaskin was brought to the jail and interviewed. It did not take much prying to get him to talk. All he wanted was his favorite cheap cigars. Carmen was the one who ran out to get them. And we took him to the jail. I don't know if you remember this, but he was and you guys were interviewing him. We sat yeah. there for the interview, and he said he would tell us everything we wanted to know if we get him a pack of Black and Mild cigars. He yeah. came right to this jiffy and bought him a pack of Black and Mild cigars and sat there and watched him smoke while I tell the story. And this day, I can't stand Black and Mild cigars. You can't. <laughs> because he well, sat there so arrogant and just sitting there puffing on a cigarette like, like he was some hot Gaskin talked about killing the Sturmfells and shooting the Rectors. He didn't stop there. He also talked about fatally shooting a man three years earlier. The man who was killed in that shooting was an acquaintance of his. The two worked together at the local sawmill. Sam Miller, who was 57, was fatally shot in his mobile home on Sawgrass Road in Benell. 
two miles from the Jiffy Stop, where I interviewed Williams and Carmen. Here is Williams talking to me about that case. Why did he kill Sam? Never explained why he killed him. It, it, it was. But I know he had been borrowing some of the his money, right? Worked out there told me that Sam would loan them money, and he probably didn't want to have to pay him that money back. And he was going to rob him. That's why he killed him. He went out there that, on a Friday night, I think, and shot him to get some money off of him. After I spoke with Carmen and Williams, I looked back into my newspaper's archives and found a story that gave details of what Gaskin told detectives about the murder. Gaskin originally planned to murder him and rob him of hundreds of dollars that he thought he had on him. He attacked him with a pipe and injured him, but he didn't come away with any money. Gaskin later went to Miller's home and shot him through a window. Miller begged for mercy, but Gaskin ignored him and killed him anyway. According to court testimony, Miller told a psychologist, quote, It didn't bother me. His begging for mercy didn't bother me. Gaskin kept confessing to more crimes. He told detectives that he had shot a woman outside a bank in Daytona Beach. That shooting occurred the night of September 15, 1989 on Bill France Boulevard. A manager of the limited clothing store had gone to the bank that night to make an overnight drop. That was when Gaskin opened fire. She was struck by a bullet. She was seriously injured, but survived. Gaskin was charged and convicted of attempted murder in that case, and the store manager who made a full recovery later sued the bank for failing to provide proper security for her. Gaskin was tried for the Palm Coast shootings less than six months after his December 1989 arrest. The trial lasted about a week. The prosecutor was John Tanner, who was famous for prosecuting and obtaining a conviction and death sentence for Eileen Warnos. Among the witnesses called to the stand was Gaskin's girlfriend, Janice Gilliard. She testified that Gaskin gave her a clock two lamps, and a VCR, all of which were owned by the Sturmfells. He gave them to her as presents. Tanner asked Gilliard whether Gaskin said anything to her when he gave her the presents. He said the words, Merry Christmas. The jury convicted Gaskin and voted 8-4 to four to recommend death. Back then, Florida juries did not need to be unanimous for death. If the vote was a majority in favor of death, that's all a judge needed to carry out the sentence. Circuit Judge Kim Hammond did exactly that. On June 20th, 1990, Hammond sentenced Gaskin to the electric chair. The psychologist who evaluated Gaskin testified during the trial. He said he had asked Gaskin whether he felt any guilt for killing Robert and Georgette Sturmfelds. He answered, quote, The guilt was always there. The devil had more of a hold than God did. I knew that I was wrong. I wasn't insane. There was no insanity involved. Gaskin was 22 years old when he shot his last four victims. He is now 51, and he has been on death row for more than 28 years. 
He is one of only three inmates on death row who was convicted in Flagler County. No execution date has been set. Thank you for listening. Sun Crime State will be on another extended break, but Season 3 will begin in mid-January, and it will include a slate of many more infamous cases that captured headlines across the country. Some of the cases I will profile in the coming months include Ma Barker, John Cooey, Jesse Tafera, and Ted Bundy. Stay tuned for many more captivating episodes of Sun Crime State. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at Tony.Holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal.